0: Now, that brings us to chapter 3 in the letter of Christ to the church in Sardis, and this is the Protestant church. This began, I think, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis yonder on the chapel at Wartburg. And so let me just say a word about Sardis. It was the capital of Lydia. It was one of the oldest and most important cities of Asia Minor. It was inland. It was a very prominent city well-protected, high on a promontory, had a natural fortification. And you can't even get up there today. We tried it. And I want to tell you, you just can't climb up the walls. They're just too high, and they're just too steep. And it was well-situated on a plain watered by the Pactolus River. It was the center of the carpet industry, and it was noted for its wealth. Coins were first minted here. You remember, the last prince was the wealthy Croesus. You remember, he was captured by Cyrus, but he was considered the wealthiest man in the world, and everything he touched turned to go. Sardis was ruled by the Persians, by Alexander, by Antiochus the Great, and finally by the Romans. It was destroyed by an earthquake during the reign of Tiberius. Now, they're there today at the foot of the hill, the ruins of the temple of Sibyl and also of Apollo. It's one of the few double temples you'll find in the world. And Sibyl, or Diana, as she's known in Ephesus, was the goddess of the moon, you see. But when you get inland it becomes a nature goddess. And also Apollo, the god of the sun. They were brother and sister. And this was a very corrupt worship, though, just like the worship of Diana at Ephesus. Now, they are excavating there. I've been there several times, and they're excavating, rebuilding the gymnasium, rebuilding also the synagogue there, and they have also dug up that Roman road that is there. And the thing that thrills me when I look at that road, I know Paul walked up and down that road. Now, let me read verse 1. He says, "...and unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead." Now, this is Protestantism. It comes in the period from... About 1517 A.D. to about 1800 A.D. is the period covered by this particular church here. He mentions the seven spirits of God. That's the Holy Spirit. And Protestantism today as a whole has a name that it lives, but it's dead. How many Protestant churches just go through the form All they're building all the time, and people are coming, especially Sunday morning, not many at the midweek service when they really ought to come to hear the Word of God. But that's Protestantism today. It has a name that it lives, but it's dead. And he presents himself to this church as the one having the seven spirits of God. That is, he is the one that sent the Holy Spirit into the world and the church and Protestantism needs the Spirit of God today working in the church. We think we need methods. And there are all kinds of band-aid courses for believers. You can put on a little band-aid, it'll solve all your problems. My friend, what we need to do is to get to the person of Christ that only the Holy Spirit can make real to us and make living to us. This is the thing that Protestantism needs today. And during the dark night of the dark ages, the Holy Spirit was still in the world doing His work. And He moved in the heart of a man like Martin Luther, and John Calvin, and John Knox, and many, many others. And the Lord Jesus said, I know thy works. That's the word of commendation. And it's a word common to all periods, however. And this is the period that recovered the doctrine of "...justification by faith, but thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead." That's a frightful word of condemnation, and that is a picture of Protestantism today. All of the truth was not recovered by the Reformation. We need to recognize that. I think that today eschatology, prophecy, is just being developed in our day. Now, verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Now, let me give you my translation. Wake up and watch out, and establish the things which remain which are about to die. I have found no works of thine fulfilled perfected. Now, this is the second word of condemnation. And it's a word of warning. And it had particular meaning in Sardis. You see, Sardis, as I said, was on the top of a mountain. I've tried to get up there twice, and I haven't been able to make it. And others have tried. But it has one entrance on the south side. And that was the only way you could get into the city in the old days. So all that Sardis had to do was to put a guard at that one place, a detail there, and watch the city. But on two occasions, the guard went to sleep. One time, it was when there came into the city Cyrus, the Persian, and the Medians came in and took the city. And then again, Seleucius later on did. For instance, a Median soldier scaled the parapet while the guard slept, and that is 549 B.C. and 218 B.C. A Cretan likewise slipped over the wall while the sentries were careless. Now the Lord says something to this church. He says, you wake up and watch out. And that was embarrassing to this city. They had gone to sleep on two occasions. Now he says, I'm coming to you, so stay awake. And that is the thing he's saying to Protestantism, and Protestantism today as a whole has turned away from looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And they built up these systems that certain things have to be fulfilled before He can come. My friend, it's Tisha Thin, from where we are right here to the coming of Christ's first church. He could come the next moment or tomorrow. Don't say that I said He's coming tomorrow, because I don't know. It may be a hundred years But, my friend, that's what we're to look for. Sardis didn't know when the enemy was coming there. And we don't know when Christ is coming today. We have no way of knowing at all. Protestants did recover the authority of the Word of God, the total depravity of man, and justification by faith. But there are many other things that they didn't recover. Today, the practice is to condemn Romanism and then tell how wonderful our church is. And I want to tell you, the Lord Jesus here says, we are not so wonderful either. It's not a pretty picture by any means. And the Lord doesn't find very much here to command. In fact, he says, wake up and watch out, and establish the things that remain, which were about to die. For I found no works of thine fulfilled, that is, perfected before my God. Now, this is a tremendous verse here in view of the fact that the rapture could take place at any moment. The church is to be alert. Now, actually, the date is not set, nor even the period in which he will come. And the reason for that is the church is to constantly be on the alert for his coming, looking for that blessed hope. You see, anyone can make ready for a fixed hour, but you must be always ready for an unexpected hour. And that is the thing that the Lord Jesus is doing here. He's saying to Protestantism that they are to be constantly on the alert. Now he says, hold fast. The idea is that you're to hold fast these things because they're about to die. And the great truths that were recovered in the Reformation today are being lost. For instance, the authority of the Word of God. The Protestant church, by and large, has lost that and the doctrine of the total depravity of man. Most churches, and so many of our conservative churches today, they're improving and using cosmetics on the carnal nature, thinking somehow or another that you can get up a few little rules and regulations and you're going to be able to live the Christian life. And then the great doctrine of justification by faith has been pretty much lost, and a legalistic message is given today, that you have to do something in order to be saved. Now, these are the things that characterize Protestantism today. It's very far from its original position. Now, we mentioned last time that Sardis was built high upon a mountain top. Absolutely inaccessible, except at one place. Now, it's not on a great rock, as you might suspect. That entire area through there is made up of alluvial soil. In fact, I've never been in a place where I've seen so much erosion of the soil as I saw in Turkey. Now, that's the reason that the Meander River, and it's just soup, it's not water— It's just soup that's flowing down as it's carrying so much soil, and it silts in and fills in the harbor. Actually, so that after 2,000 years, the harbor that Paul came into is now six miles from the coast of Ephesus. Now, here in Sardis, you have this constant erosion taking place, and Sir William Ramsay estimates that it was much higher in the days of Paul and of John, so that it would be more awe-inspiring than it is today and more inaccessible. Now, in spite of that, a median soldier of Cyrus in 549 gained entrance because the guard went to sleep. And then a Cretan in 218 B.C., he was able to get through the guard because they were asleep. And this was very embarrassing to this city. The two times it was captured was because the guard went to sleep. Now, the Lord says to the church there, don't you go to sleep. Wake up and watch out because he could come at any moment. And that's a word of warning to this church. Now he says to this church, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now I give you my translation of that. But thou hast a few names in Sardis that did not besmirch or defile their Christian life, and they shall walk with me in white garments, they are worthy. Now, in Israel, we've already noted that it was never the corporate body of the total national life. It was always a remnant that was true to God. Now, of the church, we're told here, you have a few. And the Lord called his church back in Luke 12:32 a little flock. Now, Protestantism today has its saints who love the Word, are faithful to Him even in these days, and they stand by the Word of God. And they do not engage in sin defiling activities, nor are they engaged in this fleshly activity. Now, here are some of the names, and I think I ought to mention that. Protestantism is produced some great men. And I am going to leave out a great many, but I think of the Reformation leaders, Martin Luther and John Calvin. They stand out, head and shoulders above all others. Of course, that was John Knox, a great man of God, did so much for Scotland. Then later on, that was John Bunyan, the great Baptist, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which was his own life, of how God marvelously saved him. And then John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, how God marvelously saved that man and used him in such a way that he is given credit by the historian as saving England from the revolution that destroyed France and prevented it from ever becoming a first-rate nation again. And Wesley's been called the greatest Englishman of all. And certainly he did more for that country than any other Englishman that's ever lived. Then there's a man like John Moffat, the Scotchman who went to Africa, and David Livingston who first opened it up. William Carey went to India and then followed by a young man, sickly young man by the name of Martin. And then I always like to include Titus Cone, who led the greatest revival since Pentecost out in the Hawaiian Islands. Protestantism has some names that didn't defile themselves. They've been true to the Word of God, and I think that there are quite a few today And I wouldn't dare to begin to name them because of the fact that I'm sure many would say, well, you left out so-and-so. Well, I wouldn't want to leave them out, so I won't mention any of the living today. But my Protestantism has produced some great men of God. Now, Romanism, we saw, did the same thing, even during the Dark Ages. But that does not mean to command the system. I personally think The system of Romanism and the system of Protestantism today as it's revealed in the great denominations that have departed from the faith that to me are the organization that will bring in eventually the apostate church because they have departed from the great tenets and the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, we find here that He mentions something in verse 5, and this is a difficult passage of Scripture. It says, "...he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment." Now, the overcomer is, of course, the one who overcomes by the blood of Christ. He never does it because of his own strength or his own cleverness or ability. Now, he makes this statement, which has caused the problem— And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, the book of life, we've already considered that before. And obviously, there is the book, two definite books, the book of the generation of Adam, we're told, back in Genesis Five, one. We're all in that book, but it's a book of death. Then there's the book of the generation of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1, one. Now, that book of the generation is an unusual expression. It only occurs in connection with Adam and then in connection with Christ. And the book of the generation of Jesus Christ is the book of life. Now, I think you get in that book by faith, in Christ. Now, that raises the question here, is it possible for you to be in the book of life and then have your name blotted out and lose your salvation? Then if that's true, then the Lord Jesus should not have said that he gives unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. And again and again we have the assurance given to us of our salvation. So what does this mean here? Well, I'd like to read to you now an excerpt from Dr. John walford's book on Revelation. And it's a very good explanation. He says, some have indicated that there is no explicit statement here that anybody will have his name blotted out but rather the promise that his name will not be blotted out because of his faith in Christ. The implication, however, is that such is a possibility. Now, on the basis of this, some have considered the book of life not as the role of those who are saved, but rather a list of those for whom Christ died. That is, all humanity who have possessed physical life. Now, as they come to maturity, faced with the responsibility of accepting or rejecting Christ, their names are blotted out if they fail to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Whereas those who do accept Christ as Savior are confirmed in their position in the book of life, and their names are confessed before the Father and the heavenly angels. Now, that is, I think, a good sound interpretation. Now, I've given in my book on Revelation that here, and I've presented other viewpoints, that in Revelation there's a great importance that's placed on this book. We find, I think, about five more Probably six more references in this book to the book of life. And we'll talk about it again when we get especially to the last one in the 22nd chapter. Now, some identify the two books in Revelation 2012 as the book of profession and the book of reality. They hold that names are erased from the book of profession, but not from the book of reality. Now, others have suggested that all names are placed in the book of life at the beginning, but some are removed. A person's lack of decision for or rejection of Christ causes his name to be removed at the time of death. Now, both of these views propose serious objections as well as having good points to command them. And so I leave it there. I'm confident that the whole thought is just simply this, that it was amazing that anybody in Sardis would be saved. But there were some there that he said their names would not be blotted out of the book of life. And he didn't say that anybody had been blotted out. He just said that even in Sardis, where they didn't think that they were saved, that they would be. I think I read you a very interesting little bit of doggerel the other day about this party went to heaven and was so surprised to see others there. But the thing that really shocked this party was that nobody there expected this person to be present. Well, may I say to you the important thing is whether our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I do not believe that after you're saved, you'd ever be able to lose that salvation. Now, verse 6, he says, "...he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." Now, this is, the, again, the blood-tipped ear that needs to hear the voice of the Spirit speaking through the Word of God, the message of Christ, to his church today. Now, we come to the letter of Christ to the church in Philadelphia. And this is what I've called the revived church. This is the church that is turned back to the Word of God. And today, I think that in Protestantism, and also that there are many that are in the Roman Catholic Church, our mail indicates that, that multitudes of people today are turning to the Word of God. There is a movement in that direction. Our mail indicates that from all over the world now, people wanting to hear the Word of God and hungry for it. Now, that's the church in Philadelphia. I ought to say something about this church. I've been to it. It's fact, it's a little town today and a little Turkish town, rather prosperous town. Now, it's inland just about as far as any church that we know anything about, with the exception of Laodicea and Colossae. Colossae is probably farther inland than any other. But this church of Philadelphia is inland, and it was like a Greek colony that was over in this Anatolian area, that the Greeks, of course, considered heathen and pagan. In fact, the Greek word for it was barbarian. In fact, anybody who wasn't a Greek was a barbarian back in those days. Now, it was over, well, I suppose 125 to 150 miles from the coast, certainly from Ismir or Smyrna or even farther than that from Ephesus. Now, this is the one church besides Smyrna that our Lord had no word of condemnation for. Why? Because it's turned to the Word of God. And it's interesting that the two churches he did not condemn, that the places are still in existence, though the church has disappeared. However, in Philadelphia, there's something there that is quite interesting. And I'd like to tell you about that. First of all, there is the remains of a Byzantine church which reveals that Christianity was active there up to about the 12th or 13th century. And the people who keep that area must be Christian. They don't say much about it, and I couldn't converse with them, but they very graciously brought me out, a dipper it was, of water and a pitcher, And it gets hot over there, and it was very warm. And they brought that out, and the man and his wife had brought it. We're just all smiles. I couldn't talk to them. They couldn't talk to me. But we did communicate, I think, something of Christian love. And I did experience that there. That's still in Philadelphia. But that is not the pillar that is mentioned there. A great many point to that, and that's where they take the tours. But my first time there, I had seen a picture before in Dr. Adams' book of a big amphitheater. It's not there. It's been totally destroyed. And I told the guide, I said, don't stop here. I want to go up there on the side of the hill. And we went up there, and there was a Turkish coffee shop up there, And our guide talked to him, and he said, yes, there had been that amphitheater. There had been destroyed, and the only thing left was a pillar. And I have a picture of that pillar that is there. It's hidden away under the trees. Now, why did the Turkish government get rid of that? I'll tell you why. They brutally, the Seljuk Turks, brutally killed the Christians in Philadelphia. And today... They'd rather for you and me to forget about it. But that church went up into the 13th century and was a missionary church and witness for Christ. That's the church that honored the Word of God. Now that city is in a very beautiful valley that is inland a great deal. It is in a valley that the river there empties into the Hermus River. And it runs actually north and south. It is a beautiful section, one of the widest valleys of all, and it's built up against the side of this mountain range. There are several mountains that are there. And the old city that was there in John's day, and probably Paul's day, and the days of the apostles, it had a great Acropolis great theater there, and the city was built at the foot of the hills. Now that city has spread out a great deal, and it's a typical Turkish town that is there. Now it is in an area where it's subject to earthquakes. Some have asked the question, what happened to the great population that was in that area? Well, they left primarily because of earthquakes, And, of course, warfare when Tamerlane and these great leaders, pagan leaders, came out of the east and the Seljuk Turks came into that section. It was a time when those that were left were slaughtered so that today the original population is not there at all. But this city has had continuous habitation from the very beginning, and as we have said It was like an island out in Lydia, out in the Anatolian country, and the Lydian language was spoken there at first. But by the time you come to the apostles, the Greek language had taken over, and it was a typical Greek colony that was there. It was a great fortress city. It was to waylay the enemy that would come in to destroy the great cities like Ephesus and Smyrna. And Pergamum, those were the three great cities. These other cities were largely fortress cities where garrisons were stationed to either stop the enemy or to delay him as he marched toward the east coast. Now, this is in a country where we called attention last time that erosion is at work. And the soil is quite alluvial, but very fertile soil. Beautiful laurel trees around, many flowers, and I noticed that they grow just about everything there that is imaginable. But at Philadelphia, it was an area where there were many vineyards, especially on the side of the hill, and the god that the pagans worshipped there was Bacchus, and they were very much given there to idolatry. But Christianity certainly got a good foothold in that area. Now, the city did not get its name, as so many seem to think, from the Bible. Actually, the city got its name because of the love that Attalus II had for his brother Eumenes. Eumenes was king of Pergamum. And this man, Talos, had a great love and loyalty for his brother. And because of that, it's called the city of brotherly love as he was here. This was the outpost of Greek culture in a truly Asiatic and Anatolian atmosphere. And there was the Greek temple there of Bacchus, as we've indicated Now, it was called a little Athens because of the fact it was in that area and certainly was truly Greek. Now, in A.D. 17, a great earthquake struck that city and totally destroyed it, and the same earthquake totally destroyed Sardis and many other Lydian cities through that area. And Tiberius, the emperor allocated a million dollars for the rebuilding of these cities. And they were, of course, built back. Now, this is the place where Christian and Saracen fought here during the Crusades. And here in 1922, Turkey and Greece fought. And there is apparently there a few Christians. They're under cover, of course, today because they'd be severely persecuted And I told about my experience there at the ruins of that Byzantine church. Now, this church was in a very strategic area, by the way. To be a missionary church for that actually was what it is. Now, this is the church that we've labeled the revived church, the church that returned back to the Word of God and began to teach the Word of God. And that represents... I think Protestantism today, it began, I think, back in the actually the last century, and it has gained since then. So that Bible teaching today is not something that is new by any means, but it has certainly become rather popular. We feel very definitely that we've come in this program. A Bible teaching has come in on the crest of a wave of interest in the Word of God today. In other words, we do believe that God has raised us up for this particular hour. We have that conviction. Now, in verse 7, "...and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write..." Now, I remind you again, the angel is the human messenger, the pastor of the church. This is the Lord's method in all of the churches... He says, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man sheddeth, and sheddeth, and no man openeth. Now, he always draws something from that vision of himself as the glorified Christ, our great high priest. Now, will you notice, he reminds them that he's holy. He was holy at his birth. He was holy at his death, and he's holy today in his present priestly office, and he is so called. You remember at his birth that holy thing that is born of thee, the angel had said to Mary, and in his death he was holy. He was made sin for us, but he was holy and harmless and undefiled and he was separate from sinners. We're told over in Acts 2.27 this year, "...because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption." He was holy in his death and in his resurrection. What a marvelous thing this. Now he is also holy today, in his high priestly office, by the way. And I turn over to the seventh chapter of Hebrews, and I'd like to just share that verse with you there, the 26th verse. Listen to this. "...For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens." Now, he's also true, we're told here. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And true means genuine, with an added note of perfection and completeness. In other words, Moses did not give the true bread. Christ is the true bread. And he hath the key of David. Now, this is different from the keys of Hades and death that we saw at the beginning, This speaks of his regal claims as the ruler of this universe. He shall sit upon the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, that is the thing the Word of God says. And he's to sit on the throne of David in the millennium, but today he is a sovereign, but he's sitting at his father's right hand waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. And he is the one that is able to open and to close. And because of that, he's a comfort to those today. Now he says to this church, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. No man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my faith." Now, this is the verse that we have taken as the motto for the Through the Bible radio program. We began with it at the first, and it means a great deal to us. I'm going to give you my translation of it, though. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have given thee a door open, which none can shut. For thou hast a little strength, and that strength is... We get our word dynamite for you have a little power. And didst keep my word, and didst not deny my name. Now, this is the church that was true to the Word of God. And you can't call it the Protestant church. You certainly couldn't call it the Roman church or any other church today. It is those churches that are all over the world, for that matter, that still remain true to the Word of God. And will you notice what he says here? I know thy works. The Lord Jesus is looking for fruit. He's looking for works in the lives of believers. We have been saved by grace, but we've been created under good works, which God has before ordained, and we should walk in them. And, friends... There's something wrong with your faith if it doesn't produce works. That's the thing you remember that James says, good old practical camel need James, a great man of prayer. This man said, you show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, works is not works of law. It's works of faith. Saving faith produces works. Calvin said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It produces something. Now, he says, I've given thee a door open which none can shut. Now, that could be a door to the joy of the Lord or to a knowledge of the Scriptures. And I personally think that it is a door to the knowledge of the Scriptures which means if he opens the door, he intends for you to move in because he'll open a door of opportunity for witnessing and proclaiming the Word of God. And I believe that both go together. And he says you have a little strength. And that's all we've ever had, which sometimes I don't think we got any. In other words, this is an humble group of believers which doesn't have impressive numbers of buildings and programs. I don't know, I get a little weary today about hearing even the through the Bible making reports. My, how we like to talk about those things today. My friends, that type of thing's not worth anything. We talk about the hundreds of letters of those that accepted Christ. That's nothing. The important thing today is, are we getting out the Word of God? He'll do the counting. God has his own computer that's registering all of this, and he tells us that we better not. And in fact, Paul could say, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Why doesn't he? Well, Paul says, I may turn in too many converts. I may speak evangelistically and I may give you wrong figures, and I may look at this a little different than God does. I'm going to have to wait till I get in his presence. Now, he says, you did keep my word. That means that in a day when there was a denial of the inspiration of the Scriptures, this church believed the Bible to be the authoritative, inspired word of God. And a 20th century theologian, course, of the liberal ranks, he stated that no intelligent person could believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. Well, that sure puts me in a bad light then, because I'm not an intelligent person, because I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. That is, if his definition is right. But I don't think he's right about that even. Now, the fifth thing he mentions here, "...and did not deny my name." Now, that means in a day when the deity of Christ is blatantly denied by seminaries and the pulpit and the church, here is a church are a group of believers that have remained true to him by proclaiming the God-man and his substitutionary death for sinners. Now, in verse 9, he says, Behold, "...I'll make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they're Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I'll make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee." Now he says, if you want my translation, let me give it to you. He says, "...Behold, I give of the synagogue of Satan, of them that say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them that they shall come and worship before your feet, and to know... That I've loved you. Now, the remnant of Israel, which was being saved, had left the synagogue by this time. They'd given up the law as a means of salvation and sanctification. Those who continued in the synagogue were now in a false religion, and as Paul makes it clear in Romans, all Israel's not Israel. They were no longer true Jews. He considered the true Israelite was the one that had turned to Christ. Now, Ignatius, according to Trench and reported by Vincent, refers to a local situation where converts from Judaism preached the faith that they once despised. And that was true there. And by the way, the Roman Empire used Jews for the purpose of colonizing. They would send them, a regular colony of them, into a foreign area, which they did in this section, and that's the reason there were so many of them there. Now the Lord Jesus also says here, he'll make the enemies of the Philadelphian church to know that he loves this church. Now this is the sixth point of commendation. Now, friends, I'm rather reluctant to leave the message the Lord Jesus had to the church in Philadelphia because this church in Philadelphia has been labeled many things. Some have called it the missionary church, and I think that's accurate. Some have called it the serving church, and that is accurate. And some have called it a live church, and that is accurate. I personally like to call it the revived church, or the Bible-believing church. It is the Bible church. And that is the thing that the Lord Jesus emphasizes, and it's this, "...Thou hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name." And so in a day of unbelief and skepticism, The Lord Jesus is commanding this church because this church has kept his word. And so this is a church that got out the word of God. And as far as we know, this church lasted longer than any of the other seven churches that are mentioned here. In fact, it lasted until the 13th century. It had a continued existence And it was destroyed by the Seljuk Turks when they came in and they brutally murdered all of the believers that were left in this church. Now, this church sent out missionaries also. And it's the belief now that the fact that Christianity had penetrated into India so early was because this church had sent out missionaries. Now, the Lord Jesus, in verse 10 says this to Philadelphia. He says, "...because thou hast kept the word of my patience." And that, I think, is his word today. I believe God is still patient with a world that has rejected his word. It's not like it was back in the days of Noah. They didn't have the written word of God, yet God judged them. They did have a man... Bringing a message to them. But today we have the Word of God. And there's a Gideon Bible in practically every room in every hotel and motel throughout the world today. I've looked in the motel in different places that I've been in different countries, in both Europe and Asia and Africa, and I find that the Word of God is penetrated. All of these areas. This is the church that believed in the word of God. Now he says, because you've kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation or of testing which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now this is definitely the great tribulation period. Because beginning with chapter 4, after the preliminaries are put down in chapters 4 and 5, beginning with 6 through 19, you have the great tribulation period, this period that he says that's coming upon all the world to test those that are up on the earth. Now the Lord Jesus says, "'I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation.'" Now, not only from that awful holocaust that's coming on this earth, that period of judgment, but also from that period, from the hour of temptation, so that this is, to my judgment, a complete deliverance. And when he says, "...to keep thee from the hour," I have put in my translation here, "...to keep thee out of the hour." that's coming upon the earth. Keep you out of the hour of trial that's coming upon the earth. So that by any stretch of the imagination, you couldn't say that this church is going through the great tribulation period. And I believe that the Philadelphia church continues right on through to the rapture of the church. This is the church that will go out at the time of the rapture. Now, the church of Laodicea, as we're going to see, is an organization that will continue on in the world, although he gives a marvelous invitation to it. And many, even in that Laodicean church, will turn to Christ, and at the time of the rapture, they will be taken out. But there is a church that goes through the great tribulation, and that is the apostate church, and that, of course, is the church of Laodicea. So that what we have here is the coming of Christ to take his own out of the world, and he promises this church that it's not going through that particular period that's coming on the earth. And I'd like to give just here a quotation from Dr. John Walford's book on Revelation. He says, If the rapture had occurred in the first century preceding the tribulation, which the book of Revelation describes, they were assured of deliverance. By contrast, those sealed out of the twelve tribes of Israel, in chapter 7, verse 4, clearly go through the time of trouble. This implies the rapture of the church before the time of trouble referred to as the great tribulation. Such a promise of deliverance to them would seemingly have been impossible if the rapture of the church were delayed until the end of the tribulation prior to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. He not only says this to the church, But he says, "...behold, I come quickly." Now, that doesn't mean soon. We've seen that back in the first chapter. It has the idea of suddenness and an air of expectation. That is, he'll come at a time they know not. Therefore, it does not mean he's coming immediately, but his coming will be sudden. And this is the promise that is the hope of the church. Actually, the church is not looking for the great tribulation period. Nowhere are we told to gird up our loins, grit your teeth, and clench your fist. Boy, it's coming, the great tribulation, and you're going to go through it. And believe me, he never says that. But looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the church that is to be raptured, his true church. And I don't think you can put them in any denomination or any local church. I think they're scattered throughout the world today, and you find some of them belonging to some very funny organizations, by the way. And I don't understand it, but that apparently is none of my business. They'll have to straighten it out with the Lord. I'm going to have a whole lot to straighten out myself. And so I personally would pass now from that today. I should close the last book with him saying to Philadelphia, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Now he has a message that he gives to each one of these churches. It applied to the local church, but it applies to us today also. We come to the letter of Christ to the church in Laodicea. Now, this is the last one. And this is the city of compromise, according to Sir William Ramsey. He calls it that. Now, this church was founded by Antiochus II in 261 to 246 B.C. It had a Seleucid foundation... Seleucus was one of the generals of Alexander who took Syria, and Lysimachus took Asia Minor. But Seleucus apparently moved over in his territory and took over some of his ground, and this happened to be one of them that he did, because actually this city is very far inland. It is at what is known as the Gates of Phrygia, out of the east, the Oriental East, The great camel caravans came down through the gates of Phrygia, and they came by and came through Laodicea. Laodicea was a great city, and this road that came out of the east, and it went to Ephesus and to Miletus and also up to what we call today Ismir, but Smyrna in that day. It was in a spectacular place, a great valley. And the ruins that are there today are largely covered up. Wild oats is growing over most of Laodicea, but it's on the Lycus River. That river flows into the Meander River. And it was a name that it meant justice of the people. But actually, it was named for the wife of Antiochus, Laodicea, and there were several cities that bear this name, by the way, of Laodicea. This one, of course, was the most famous one of all. Now, it was a great place of wealth. It was a great commercial center, as you can well understand. And it was a place of Greek culture, and it was a place of science and of literature. It had an excellent medical school. It was a center of industry with extensive banking operations. Cicero held court here, and it is said that he brought bills here that he cashed in this city. And they worshiped Jupiter or Zeus, and it was finally abandoned because of earthquakes. And the ruins there are very impressive, what you can see there. Are actually two Roman theaters, there's a big stadium there, and there are three early Christian churches. The ruins of them are still there. Now, actually the city itself has not been excavated. In other words, these ruins, they protrude up through all of the debris and all of the growth that is there. As we said, it looks to me like it's wild oats that grow all over the place. And I heard from a man in Istanbul that there was an American foundation that had set aside 2 or $3 million to excavate Laodicea. And if I wasn't so involved, I'd love to go over there and join in that excavation. I think it would be very much worthwhile. Now, this was a city that was a big business place. They made clothing there. And they manufactured an eye salve. You can stand on the ruins of Laodicea and look around at the hills that are not too far away. And from there you can see where Colossae is located. You can also see back toward Hierapolis where the springs are. And actually the greatest ruins are not in Colossae or Laodicea, but really in Hierapolis. But the hills there have a very funny color. And they took that clay and they made it into a salve for eyes and also for ears. And it was shipped all over the Roman Empire. Now today, the chemical analysis reveals that there's nothing healing in that clay at all. But somebody made good money at it in that day. And somebody says, well, today we're civilized. My friends, there's a lot of medicine on the market today won't do you a bit of good, and we're just buying it just fast as we can. In fact, we're given high-pressure advertising, so we buy it. We better not criticize these people too much, but the Lord Jesus did. He told them they better buy the real eye salve that would open their eyes. But now we're going to see that. Now he says this, verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, "...these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God." And I'll change that now and give you my translation. "...to the messenger of the church in Laodicea write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God." Now, this is the only place in Scripture where Amen is a proper name, and it's the name of Christ. Over in Isaiah 65:16, 16, it should read, "...the God of the Amen." And here we have this name that is given, and I read 2 Corinthians 1:20. That's what I'm after. "...for all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, Amen, Under the glory of God by us." The Lord Jesus is the Amen. He has the last word. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And so we have here the fact that he is the one that's going to fulfill all the promises of God. And he lets the Laodiceans know that because this is a church that has rejected the deity of Christ. And that, by the way, the word amen is the only thing he draws out of the vision of himself we had in the first chapter. Now, he says he's the faithful and true witness. And this reveals that the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the one who will reveal all and tell all. In this day when it's very difficult to hear the truth, you certainly don't get it through the news media today, and you don't get it from government, and you find that even colleges are great brainwashing institutions. The military does practically the same thing today. Who can you believe? Well, there's one who is the faithful and true witness, even in the days of apostasy, because you can't believe the church in many instances. The liberal church has no message for this hour. And now he's called the beginning of the creation of God. That means he's the creator in this day which has accepted the myth of evolution. The evolutionary hypothesis is that which is accepted. And as I said to a college professor, a friend of mine, he and I were in school together. He's accepted the evolutionary hypothesis. And he says, I want facts. I want science. I said, wait just a minute. I said, there are not but two explanations for the origin of this universe you and I live in. One is speculation, because nobody was there to see it. Nobody's able to come up with the answer. The other is revelation. It's what the Word of God says. Now, I said, very frankly, the difference between you and me is you accept speculation. I accept revelation. And as far as I'm concerned, I feel like I'm on more solid ground because I have the testimony other the one who did the creating, and he ought to know something about it, by the way. And he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, he says to this church, verse 15 and 16, I know thy works. Now, always with the other churches, when he said that, he meant good works. He commended them for good works. But he has no word of commendation for this church whatsoever. And he says, I know thy works. "...that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would, thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll spew thee out of my mouth." Now, let me say this, because we're coming to the end of this particular period, and I want to talk about that matter of being lukewarm, cold and hot next time, which is the condition of the church today, and unfortunately it's the condition of a great many so-called fundamental or conservative churches today. Thank God there are many that do not come in under that classification at all. But the thing that is absolutely startling and frightening and it's fearful, he says, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, let's look at that for just this moment. He says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Does that sound to you like the church he's going to rapture and catch up? He says that where I am, there ye may be also. I don't think so. This is not a church he draws to himself. But here's a church that he just vomits out because it's lukewarm. Lukewarm water makes you sick at your tummy and... I'm of the opinion today that if he spoke to a lot of churches and a lot of us believers, it's rather frightening. I think he'd say, you make me sick at my tummy. You're professed Christianity today. You say you love me. You say these things, but you really don't. May I say to you, this is a heart-searching message for this hour because we're living in the time of the Laodicean church and the Philadelphian church. Both of them are side by side, and there's a great bifurcation in Christianity. And it's not in denominations. It's actually not Romanism and Protestantism. The great bifurcation are those who believe the Word of God and follow it and love it and obey it, and those who reject it. That is the line of division today. Now, the Lord Jesus has no word of commendation for this church. All is condemnation. And even the works here are not good works. They're evil works. And the church was neither cold nor hot. Now, that had a background and a local meaning in that day. In Thyatira, they were down in very much of A plain, although it's quite hilly there, it's in a great valley. And the Phrygian mountains that are in the distance to the east, in fact, it's at the gates of Phrygia. Both the Laodicea and Colossae are in that unusual location. And between Laodicea and going on up to the Phrygian mountains, there was in this valley a great temple, and it was the temple, Anatolian temple, of the Phrygian god Mankaru, or the Korean Man. This was actually the primitive god of that area. But the temple that was built there was the very center of all society and of the administration, and of trade, and also, of course, of religion. And it was a very primitive religion there, and they had a great market there. And here was where strangers came. They came from everywhere, and they came and traded in this great market. It is something these people apparently always engaged in, I suppose, that... Great market in Istanbul today is very similar to it. And then also it was a place where they had a great medical school. Now, of course, again, this was very primitive and actually very heathen. And here is where they developed what is known in the Roman world as Phrygian powder. It was for the ears and for the eyes because they used that chemical that they took out of the hills there. It's an unusual type of clay, and they put with a spice nard, and it was sold all over the Roman Empire. This was a very wealthy place. Now, being down in the valley, they had difficulty getting water in Laodicea. And I've stood right there in the ruins, and I've looked toward the south to those Mountains that are there, those Phrygian mountains, and some of them are very high. And I've been there around the first of June, and there's still an abundance of snow upon top of those mountains. The Laodiceans built an aqueduct to bring that cold water down from the mountains and bring it into Laodicea. They needed the water. Now, that water left up in the mountains, it was ice cold. By the time it made all that trip down the mountain and it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm, and lukewarm water not very good. Now, down the valley, actually down where this river here joins, the Meander River, why, there is a hot springs, and the springs are so hot, the steam that comes out that the Turkish government has kept it, and they're using that today. And I understand and tend to use it more and more because of the fact that it's there in abundance. Well, this is the hottest water you can imagine. A lot of it is just steam. Well, when they got this hot water and they took it up to Laodicea, time it got there, it was no longer hot water. It was lukewarm water. So when the Lord Jesus says to this church, you're neither cold nor hot, they knew exactly what he was talking about, and they were lukewarm. And they'd been drinking lukewarm water for years. Came out of the mountains ice cold. It came from these springs down near the Meander River, red hot. By the time they got it, whether hot or cold, it was lukewarm to them, and it was sickening. That is a sickening water. Even today, we like to put a little ice in our water, or many folk drink hot water. But lukewarm water is just not good, friends. And the Lord Jesus said that this church was neither cold nor hot, and he'd spew it out of his mouth. Now, that cold church actually means that it was the church that had denied everything and it was given over to a formality, and it was carrying on an active opposition to the Word of God and to the gospel of Christ. It opposed it. And you find that today in liberalism, that they are in active opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then there was the hot, and that speaks of those with real spiritual fervent passion. That was like the Christians of Ephesus who were even then getting away from their best love. Oh, the Spirit of God had brought them to a high pitch in their personal relationship to Christ. But this church was not hot either. It wasn't cold and it wasn't hot, just lukewarm. And between those positions of hot and cold, you have this lukewarm state. And I would say that that is a picture of many, many churches today, the great denominations that have departed from the faith. There are many churches in these denominations and out of them also. They attempt to maintain a middle-of-the-road position. They do not want to come out just flat-footed for the Word of God and for the great doctrines of the Christian faith. But at the same time, they don't want to be known as a liberal church. So they play footsie with both groups. I know certain ministers that do that. I have broken fellowship with quite a few men that are extremists in both directions, some that have become extreme fundamentalists, some become extreme liberals, and many of these men attempt to play both sides of the street. And that is a condition that's impossible. That's the thing that makes the Lord Jesus Christ sick. He very frankly says he'll spew them out of his mouth. Now, this, to my judgment, this middle-of-the-road position is the worst kind of hypocrisy that there is, having a name that they live, but they're dead having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And that is what Protestantism actually assumed that position, that they believed all these great doctrines. And the creeds of all of the great churches are wonderful creeds. The Westminster Confession of Faith, largely repudiated by the church that owned it for years. And then the Heidelberg Confession is a marvelous confession. And you look at the confession of these other churches, their creeds, wonderful creeds, well, who's following them? Who believes them today? And they have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. They have a name that they live, but they are dead. They are neither hot nor cold. They're lukewarm. And this is a frightful picture that's presented. Now, he says in verse 17, and I'm going to read now from my translation, Thou sayest, I am rich. Now, the city of Laodicea was a rich city. I suppose Laodicea and Sardis were probably two of the richest cities in that entire area at that particular time. Now he says, "...thou sayest I am rich, and have gotten riches, and have need of nothing." (laughs) They believed that the dollar was the answer to every problem of life. And after World War II, that is the assumption that our government was run on. All we did was dole out dollars all over the world, and we thought we'd buy friends make peace, and settle the problems of the world. And very frankly, I believe that our nation has probably complicated the world more than anything else. China's in the condition it's in because of our meddling. And Germany divided as it was divided. And the problem down in Israel today, the Middle East, that has all been the making of a nation that's been sticking its nose in everybody's business and not tending to our own business. And as a result, we thought that the dollar, all we have to do is allocate money and we solve the problems of the world. My friend riches never solved any problem. This church in Laodicea tried it. I am rich, have gotten riches, and had need of nothing. And thou dost not know that thou art the wretched one, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Now, this church made its boast of material possessions. Conversely, the church in Smyrna was poor in material things. You remember the Lord Jesus commended them for that. It was a church of slaves and poor folk. There were not many rich and not many noble in the early church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, the present-day church boasts of large membership, prominent people, huge attendance, generous giving, and ornate buildings. That's the thing that we boast of in this day. And I have figures here that tell a frightful story in one way. And I'm giving now a quotation from an article by Mr. Purse in Moody Monthly several years ago. He says, "...a phenomenal growth in membership." From 20% of our population in 1884 to 35% of the population in 1959, that was the height, by the way, 61 million Protestant church members would indicate the possibility of a church on fire for God. And there are other indications, wealth beyond the wildest dreams of our forefathers. "...an income of $5 billion in 1959, a building program that will see $800 million spent for new church structures, mass evangelistic meetings attended by tens of thousands, use of other mass media such as radio and literature increasing constantly." Now, that's the end of quotation. And now, will you listen to this? Worldly wealth is the measuring rod for the modern church. Spiritual values have been lost sight of or entirely ignored. The church is not only rich in earthly goods, but it actually is in the business of accumulating wealth. People are urged to make their wills in favor of so-called Christian organizations, radio programs, and other professing Christian works are operated as promotional schemes to raise money to provide luxurious care for the promoters. And friends, you ought to check how your money is being spent that you give to Christian work. And may I say this, that you ought to make sure that if you leave in your will, and I hope you will, leave in your will, money for Christian work. But you're going to make sure that after you're gone, it's going to be spent just for that very thing. Now, may I say to you, on the spiritual side of the ledger, the Laodicean church is the wretched one. It's worse off than any other of the seven churches. It's to be pitied because it's spiritually poverty-stricken. In it is no study of the Word, no love of Christ, no witnessing of His saving grace. Yet it's blind to its own true condition, It lacks the covering of the robe of righteousness. Now, let me give you a picture today. A pastor over in Arlington, Virginia, back in 1967, wrote this. I guess it was in his bulletin. I'd like to pass this on. He sends an open letter to Jane Ordinary, and he says, Dear Jane, I'm writing to help you shake this feeling of uselessness that has overtaken you. Several times you've said that you don't see how Christ can possibly use you. You're nobody special. The church must bear part of the responsibility for making you feel as you do. I have in mind the success story mentality of the church. Our church periodicals tell the story of John J. Moneybags, who uses his influential position to witness for Christ. At the church youth banquet, we have a testimony from All-American football star Ox Kikovsky, who commands the respect of his teammates when he witnesses for Christ. we would led to think that if you don't have the leverage of stardom or a big position in the business world, you might as well keep your mouth shut. Nobody cares what Christ has done for you. We've forgotten an elementary fact about Christian witness, something that should encourage you. God has chosen what the world calls foolish to shame the wise. He has chosen what the world calls weak to shame the strong. He has chosen things of little strength and small repute. Yes, and even things which have no real existence— "...to explode the pretensions of the things that are, that no man may boast in the presence of God." When Jesus Christ chose his disciples, he didn't choose Olympic champs or Roman senators. He chose simple people like you. Some were fishermen, one as a political extremist, another was a publican, a nobody in that society. But these men turned the Roman world upside down for Christ. How did they do it? Through their popularity, they had none. Their position, they had none. Their power was the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Jane, don't forget that we still need the ordinary in the hands of Christ to turn the world upside down. You see, friends, that we in the church, saying, "...the church is one foundation, it's Jesus Christ her Lord, she is his new creation by water and the word, from heaven he came and sought her, to be his holy bride with his own blood he bought her, and for his life he died." And yet, it's true, that inscription that's on the cathedral at Lubeck, Germany, and it goes like this, thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. Ye call me Master, and obey me not. Ye call me Light, and see me not. Ye call me Way, and walk me not. Ye call me Life, and choose me not. Ye call me Wise, and follow me not. Ye call me Fair, and love me not. Ye call me Rich, and ask me not. Ye call me Eternal, and seek me not. Ye call me Noble, and serve me not. Ye call me Gracious, and trust me not." Ye call me might and honor me not. Ye call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. This is the church in Laodicea. This is the church that Stanley Hyde made the statement several years ago. He says the church has failed to tell me that I'm a sinner. The church has failed to deal with me as a lost individual. He says, "...the church has failed to offer me salvation in Jesus Christ alone. The church has failed to tell me of the horrible consequences of sin, the certainty of hell, and the fact that Jesus Christ alone can save." He went on to add, "...we need more of the last judgment and less of the golden rule, more of a living God and a living devil as well, more of a heaven to gain and a hell to shun." The church must bring to me a message not of cultivation, but of rebirth. I might fail that kind of a church, but that kind of church would not fail me. My friend, we're living in the Laodicean period today, and the church is failing to witness to the saving grace of God. Now, he says to the church in Laodicea, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and that's the precious blood of Christ, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that's the righteousness of Christ, and that the shame of thine nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesight that thou mayest see. That means the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of believers today. And then he says, as many as I love I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. And this is his last message to the church. He says, be zealous. He says, be hot. Get on fire for God. He's ordering this church to forsake its lukewarm state. And he says, repent. This church needs repentance more than all the others. And repentance is for the church today. But you won't be popular if you tell them that. I can assure you that, my friend. Now, verse 19, he's talking now to the church there in Laodicea. And even it's not too late in this church, apparently, for those that are there to turn to Christ. He says, "...as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent." And so this church could turn to Christ and be zealous. And that word zealous means to be hot. They were lukewarm. And then he says, Behold, now I take it that beginning at verse 20, that this is a general invitation that goes out from the Lord Jesus at any time. And it is this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, and open the door, I will come in to him, and I will sup with him, and he with me. Now, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus at the heart's door of the sinner. It's a glorious picture. Holman Hunt, the artist, painted this. It's a picture of Christ standing at the door. When he first painted that picture, why, he invited his artist friends in to criticize it. And one of them said to him, he said, Holman, you've left off a very important part of the door. You left off the handle of the door. There's no handle there. And he says, well, he says, that door is a picture of the human heart, and the handle on the door is on the inside, so that here we have that Very picture, he stands at the door and knocks. Now, he won't crash the door. You see, regardless of what some extremists today on this matter of election say, the Lord Jesus will move, and he has moved heaven and hell to get to the door of your heart. But when he gets there, he'll stop and knock, and you will have to open the door to let him in. That is the picture that is there. And he says, I will come into him and I'll sup with him, and he with me. And that means fellowship. It means to feed on the Word of God. It means to come to know Jesus Christ better. Now he says in verse 21, "...to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne." "...even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne." And again, I call attention to the fact when he speaks of his relationship to the Father, he always makes it unique. It's here, my Father. When he said, I send him, my Father. Not our Father, because the relationship is always different with him. Now, he's preparing us for the next scene that will be coming up when he says, I'm sitting on the Father's throne at his right hand. And that is the picture that we're going to see. Now, he says in verse 22, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, this is a message, a special message from the Lord Jesus to all the churches that You need the blood-tipped ear to hear. And that's the reason that today you and I need to be very careful about our study of the Word of God, that we not run ahead of the Spirit of God, but that we let Him be our teacher. If you have an ear, a blood-tipped ear, why He wants you to hear what He has to say. And only the Spirit of God can make that real to us. Now, that concludes these seven churches these are the things that are, and they have been very important. I've spent a lot of time with these seven churches because it relates to the period in which we live and to, shall I say, to our crowd. Because if we are a member of his church, we're also a member of his body and is a great company beginning with the day of Pentecost and down to the present hour. There are millions of those that have trusted the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Now, we've seen these seven churches blocked off in very definite periods of time, and largely they're fulfilled. I think that we are in the period of the last two churches. And as we've said before, there is a bifurcation in the organized, visible church today. There is that church which is moving farther and farther into the apostasy, and then there is that church that is staying by the Word of God, the church in Philadelphia. That's the church that will be raptured, the other church with its tremendous organization, and it includes all of the denominations, all that profess to be Christian churches, but have long since departed from the Word of God and have departed from the person of Christ. And that division today exists in the church. One church will be raptured, the other will go into the Great Tribulation period. Now, may I say that there's been a message in each one of these churches. Now, personally, I've enjoyed going through these, this time more than I ever have before. And the reason for that is that since I wrote my book and taught the book of Revelation, the last time I have made several trips to the churches in Turkey, that is Asia Minor, and I have visited the ruins of all seven of these churches. I've been to all of them two times, and some of them as many as four or five times. And I have always enjoyed it. And each time that we have come to a new church here, I can see those ruins before my eyes. I can see the local situation. Now, he's spoken to a local situation. And he also blocked off all the church history. These are representative churches, seven of them, the complete period of the church while it's here on the earth, but also there is a message in each one of them for you and me today. Now, the church in Ephesus, there was a warning given, and it's for us today. There was a danger of getting away from the best love, that is, getting away from a personal and loving relationship with Jesus Christ. I think the real test today of any believer, especially those that are attempting to serve him, is not your little method or your little mode or your little system or your dedication and all that sort of thing that is so emphasized today. The one question is, do you love him? Do you love the Lord Jesus? Now, when you love him, then you will be in a right relationship with him. But when you begin to depart from the person of Christ, it will finally lead to lukewarmness. The apostate church was guilty of lukewarmness. Doesn't seem to be too bad. But, my friend, that's the worst condition that anyone can be in. A great preacher in upper New York State years ago made this statement. He said that 20 lukewarm Christians hurts the cause of Christ more than one blatant atheist. And I certainly would agree with that. A lukewarm church today is the disgrace to Christ. But now, each one of these churches had a message for us. The church in Smyrna, he told them not to fear suffering. And believe me, that's the one thing that we are frightened of today in the church. We don't want to pay a price for serving the Lord Jesus. And yet, that is his method, by the way. And then to the church in Pergamos, or to Pergamum. He spoke to that church, and I probably just ought to reach back and lift that out. And it's in 2, 14. He says, I have few things against thee, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, and so on and those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And the danger is wrong doctrine. And that, of course, is a grave danger today. Wrong doctrine. That was the thing that was wrong in the church in Pergamos. And then the church in Thyatira. That church. And again, turn back and look at 2.20. And if you'll notice that with me, I'll read it. Notwithstanding... I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication. The new morality, and that's a grave danger for many today. They think they can accept Christ and then live on a low plane. You will not get by with it, my friend, if you are his child, I can assure you that. And then to the church in Sardis, the Protestant church, there was the danger of spiritual deadness. He says, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. And what about your church, brother? Is it alive? Are you alive? Are you dead in a dead church today? And there are many that are like that, and yet they talk about holding doctrine. But my friend, the important thing in Protestantism today is the fact of deadness. And that's the worst thing that I can imagine. Now, the church in Philadelphia, they were not in any grave danger because he doesn't condemn that church at all. He has no word at all to them. But he does say this, "...to hold fast that which thou hast." Now, what was it they had? Well, he had commanded them, you'll remember, because they kept his word. And we need to be very careful about that. I look back now over my ministry and men that started out true to the faith, many of them much stronger men than I was, and were men that defended the word of God in a way that I did not in those early days. And they've departed from the faith. I'm amazed at that, but that's a grave danger, even in the church in Philadelphia today. And none of these things ought to deter us at all. This is the history of the church.